some good news in honor of continued bad news what's something good that happened in your neck of the woods I'm Katie Rich, and because I get to go first, I get to be the one to say hooray for the Supreme Court for doing the right thing and banning discrimination employment based on sexual orientation or gender. Good for them. I'm Matt Patches, and I don't know. Not I feel like there hasn't been that many good things. I'm, you know what the good thing is in my neck of the woods? That people are still protesting and going out there, and, and uh, more and more companies are giving people Juneteenth off this year. I feel like that's a really Including good mine. thing. Oh, well, congratulations. You guys have a lot of work to do, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't running Bon Appetit's video channels. Don't put this on me. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, Hi, I'm Dave with the Seven, and they're renaming a suburb of Denver, so it won't be named after our ex-governor, who was also a high-ranking KKK member. Woo! Uh, And I'm David Ehrlich, and I guess on a similar trend as to what Katie and Patches said, uh, I was really moved by the Black Trans Lives Matter protest in Brooklyn the other day uh, around Prospect Park. I unfortunately wasn't able to be there myself because all the pro- all the marches and protests that I've gone to, I need to take my small baby, and uh, there are uh, it's kind of a, a, a limited number of them, uh, limited size. But it was really beautiful to watch from afar and to look out my window and see all the people dressed in white gathering up at Prospect Hill. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's 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 hot. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 304. It's pandemic 14. Yes, it now feels like we're going to get to pandemic like a hundred eventually, but it's going to be fun. A hundred like pandemic the, episodes. Love it's it. A, it's the fourteenth week of pandemic. Yeah. This is our fourteenth uh, week of pandemic themed show. Uh, we yeah. didn't take that week off. I think uh, that was not a pandemic number. So pandemic has been going on for so long that Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon's podcast that they formed to lift people's spirits during the panic has already ended. Oh yeah, yeah, Dolly Parton's like uh, weekly like night good night story reading has ended. Too. So many things are. Josh Gad is ending his uh, like reunion YouTube. Is ben series Gibbard that he's been doing. still playing uh, acoustic sets every night from his basement. His radio <sighs> set. Is his radio head up. still releasing uh, a concert. I actually haven't checked because all the things they were putting online were already yeah. online in some shape or form, and so it was not quite. As Should exciting. we prep some sort of like pop up second wave po- feel good podcast when? Boy. Things go down again. Oh, and everyone will feel so bad. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to this day in history, and it's a good Sorry. one. <laughs> this is the week of Wednesday, June 15th, 2020. That is the day that in 1878, the world's first moving pictures were caught on camera. 12 cameras, each taking one picture to see if all four hooves of a horse left the ground while running. At least something good happened in 1878, I imagine. I mean, <laughs> I guess that was reconstruction in the U.S. That doesn't seem like a great period. No. I don't know. I, I don't know much else about 1878, honestly. Listeners, write in. Tell us what you know about 1878. Uh, we don't have any reviews, but David also has uh, a, a PSA instructions for the, for the group. Uh, yeah, well, for the, the group at large, for our listenership, um, in lieu of reviews, but a call to action, if you will. Um, we are going to be talking on this podcast, not this week, but next week. Oh, God. One, uh, Jesus, uh, we uh, promised we wouldn't be talking about this, and you snuck yeah, it in. I am wow. in the middle of a public service announcement 
which I thought was going to be meaningful about like everything that's going on in the world. But if you would let me, I think if you're telling people to buy something, it's called an ad. Oh yeah, yeah, an ad we don't get paid for. But go ahead. Mm -hmm. Thank you. As I was saying, next week on this show, we are going to be talking about one of the truly great entertainment experiences that I've had in any media since we launched this podcast, uh, a video game called The Last of Us Part Two. Now, earlier today, I received an email from Matthew P. Patches saying, <laughs> oh boy. and based on purely on watching the cutscenes from the first game on YouTube. Was, no, excuse me, excuse shut, me. Shut, I want to clarify. Shut, it wasn't shut, just the cutscenes. It was gameplay, shut, full gameplay, full game. Uh, that he thought The Last of Us won, which many of our listeners have probably played, was, and I quote, Please. Now, Patches is an editor at a website that I think is generally excellent, but has been woefully uh, poor in their coverage of The Last of Us games. The reviews of both the first and now part two are uh, distressing, to say the least. Um, I I would encourage you, and this is the part of the PSA that, that matters, I would encourage you, anyone out there who is played and a fan of The Last of Us game and might be excited for the sequel, to leave us a review on iTunes, hopefully a positive review, but it's really up to you, in which you call Matt Patches out in advance of next week's segment for his idiocy, tell him he's wrong, please bring out your inner IGN commenter. And, I see. So uh, with this, when you said this was a PSA, this is more like a Trump tweet. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, using your power. All capital Cancel letters. Matt Ellie and Joel. Wow. Uh, yeah. Please. Uh, sicking your dogs on me. Please. I, I, I sicking my dogs like the WLF do on the players in The Last of Us Part Two. That's a reference that some of you will get in the near future. Uh, please, please give Patches the business on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. And I would love to be able to read some of those reviews if we get any. Uh, on next week's episode, some people will side before with we dive into our Last of Us Part Two coverage. Uh, the the most uh, incredible experience I've had in a very long time in terms of uh, entertainment. I oh hope you're looking God. forward to it next week. Get outside. Uh, Get outside. In 1878, Upton Sinclair was born, as was Pancho Villa. That seems relevant. Upton Sinclair, the writer of Oil. Yes, and uh, the Jungle. Oh. Wait, how did uh, we get from? The last of us part two to Upton Sinclair. I'm looking back at what else happened in 1878. Right. Throwback. <laughs> uh, also, Anna Karenina was published. Oh, wait. Is Anna Karenina? Uh, some, some Tolstoy novel was published. Sounds right. Yeah, Anna Karenina. Some Tolstoy novel. Anna Karenina. Um, today, as we record this, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences broke my heart and announced that they will officially delay the Oscars until April 28th, end of April, um, which is not the first time they've ever delayed the Oscars, although probably the first like non-disaster relate. Well, I guess coronavirus is a disaster. The previous times, there was a flood in LA, Reagan was shot, and MLK was shot. Uh, so uh, those have all been kind of like delays by a matter of days. When was the there a time. flood in LA? Like the 30s. I actually would love to know more about this, about how floods in LA like delayed the Oscars. Well, I got good news. You got a lot of coverage to fill. A lot of time. Yeah. So, I mean, 
The Oscars getting delayed is going to cause an obvious ripple effect. I think it's already started. The BAFTA awards have moved themselves back. I imagine critics awards. Hollywood elsewhere is going to have to go down for a while. Hollywood elsewhere is is celebrating in the streets. uh, (laughs) is now going to, there are going to be two phase ones. No, but no one's going to have any money to spend. I mean, like as someone who is like involved in that for your consideration economy, like I at Vanity Fair have like worked on publishing these different Oscar uh, FYC issues. That's a real concern about where the money's going to come from and when it's going to be spent um but mostly like i really liked the idea of the weirdo oscars we might have had where the contenders were going to be like strange and not usually what the oscars would want to do and people had to figure out how to make something of it there's no guarantee that the delay is going to keep that from happening like truly who knows when anyone will feel safe going to a movie theater again it probably won't be my next february when these movies will have to have come out by right um, may not be suddenly a new launching ground for uh end of the campaign oscar favorites because there may not be a sundance yeah exactly like and like if the toronto film festival moves itself back two months like okay great still i'm not going and that, plenty of other people won't be the toronto film festival is moving may, i don't think it is either um but it, I mean, it, it makes a long question. There was no way the Oscars are going to be normal this year, but mostly I just like wanted it to, I wanted us to have one thing. Like everything is up in the air, but the Oscars could have stayed and said, you know what? We will be here to celebrate the year that is whatever it is. And it now seems like they're trying to like make room for some of these big movies. Like if Tenet needs to get pushed or God knows what else, like if we said story for some reason decides not to open in December, but in February. Again, you mean, because Tenet, what? we are recording this after Tenet was delayed two weeks, which is not a yeah. basic sure let me ten- yeah tenant is like the one big thing where every- like they keep pretending they're going to open in theaters and kind of everyone thinks that it won't um anyway i just wanted to have the oscars be there as like the the lighthouse at the end of our big like rough seas um and i'm bummed about it i don't think it's like a huge deal for cinema one way or another it's going to be weird it was always going to be weird but i just would have rather them suck with their guns well, katie did you know that uh in in terms of looking for light at the end of the tunnel or something to look forward to in the cultural space that uh, several of the New York Rangers have returned to a training camp. So <laughs> Rangers made the 24 team cutoff for the NHL uh, round robin. Well, it's not a round robin tournament, the, the, the tournament that they're going to have that leads to more traditional Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, and so that's something to hap- that's to look forward to that's happening. And also I have a below deck Mediterranean every Monday night at 9 p.m. on Bravo. I got to uh, say that I, I get how baseball is going to try to come back and like play outside. Hockey is not a sport. That I, I heard. Totally I just heard a rumor that baseball is probably not coming back because they won't be able to strike a deal. And reading that rumor was the first time I noticed that there had been no baseball. <laughs> Well, sure. <laughs> Although it is, uh, we're getting to football the is going to be that is uh, usually my birthday plus the Stanley Cup plus NBA Finals, and it is kind of nice not to have this like drumbeat of other shit I don't care about going we on. All wow. focus Dis. on you. What do you? Can, let me ask you this. I mean, this may just blossom into our, our pandemic check-in, I guess, in some ways. But like, what is the Oscars moving? mean when all of these states are trying to reopen and movie like a movie like tenant staying put uh, in july um a bunch of like wonder woman just got bumped to september in theory september and through the winter might be just blockbuster extravaganza or or not i mean are the oscars moving out of the way because there's no room on the release calendar or are they moving out of the way because they don't think movies will come out in time. They're extending eligibility. I don't know if you said this, Katie. They're extending yeah. eligibility through the end of February 2021. So I guess some Oscar movies can come out then, like almost they normally do. A lot of them just come out in wide release in January. Um, but yeah, I, 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 mean, don't know, I, I don't know why they're really moving it. 
I think it gives you the optimistic view in which you have more room for Wonder Woman and Tenet and David. Dave made a money a money symbol with his hand. I think. I'm sure, like, I, did, like, but I was going to let so, Katie finish. Yeah, I mean, I think dirt. we might be saying the same thing that those blockbusters get to have the fall, uh, leading into like West Side Story and Tenet, or not Tenet, Jesus Dune, um, whatever else was supposed to open in December, and then you get to have January and February be the Oscar season, the way that like September and October can be other times, um, and you spread the wealth, and you don't have these movies all compete with each hmm. other in the most optimistic view in which movie theaters are open in. October, which or are actually crowded in October, which I'm not sure any of us actually believe. Yeah, in. I mean, if everything, and I don't necessarily foresee this happening, because I do think that the disruptions are going to continue and be more severe than we'd like to admit. But uh, if currently, anyway, by the Oscars, Matt, you can just shift everything four months down the line. Yeah, and say that the summer movie season, effectively, in terms of the movies that are coming out, will now instead of starting in the end of April, start maybe at the tail end of August. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything will just proceed at pace uh, because, you know, the Oscars are, you know, as, as much as I shared my colleagues hope for this happening are, are not about awarding the best movies. It's not about using this as a great opportunity to call attention to, um, you know, your, your baby teeth or your uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> um, baby teeth was opening this Friday. Very good movie. On never sometimes. Never, sometimes, Leo. rarely, always, always, but not sometimes, always, never. A very different movie, which I do not recommend. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about, it's about the business around this and, uh, that business, uh, the Oscars really only make sense in a way, uh, if you can have them at a time where that business is able to flourish. And yep. so, um, that's the way it's going to be. I don't think that's even a cynical way to look at it. Like the Oscars no. are about awarding good movies, but they're also about the health of the movie industry. And the movie industry is deeply unhealthy right now for a lot of reasons that are not their fault. And if they can keep this one thing alive and help award strategists and like the people who write Netflix's like elaborate magazine in business, like let them do that. Right. And I have it's, a, you know, it's not worth unpacking the whole business of it right now, but you know, you don't get parasite uh, making $50 million in theaters. It's not the engine of the Oscar campaign. Yeah. Yep. That Dave, you were saying, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying as like a maybe counterpoint that I don't know how theoretical it is or uh, whatnot, but <clears throat> if the movie industry is trying to respond to this pandemic, by sort of just like shifting. And the reality is that uh, that's not how the pandemic works. Isn't this sort of just like our government being like, we're going to take some time to figure things out and then doing nothing with that time. When really Mm. what this sort of like reads like to me is we're going to figure out a way to let these prestige movies that are already in the pipeline know that they do not have to abandon the theatrical model at any point. And they're going to still be able to like make some money, which I don't think is true. But I think is a lot uh, uh, less scary to the film industry overall than people, you know, starting to expand either uh, eligibility in non-pandemic times in terms of uh, showing in New York and L.A. or just like uh, allowing more uh, video on demand movies uh, to like jump in there. So well, those, those on demand movies are already eligible. Like they've already made the room for that. So if none of these movies ever get to show in theaters and they have to have the dang Oscars in April, like they'll be able to do that. Um, but it seems like they've allowed for more of the possibility that they'll be able to show in theaters, even though, as you're saying, it's like it might just be kicking. I mean, I like I like the I like the idea that, you know, if we do shift it for months, that maybe something like you were saying, like maybe West Side Story could come out in like February. What yeah. I'm worried about is, is now West Side Story has to come out in February. I mean, I think, you know, if mm. theaters are open in any 
wide capacity, you can't, because the Oscars can move, but Christmas can't. And that Christmas season corridor is still going to be so lucrative that your West Side stories actually can't move. Um, but Lucrative if anyone is going into theaters, yeah, but that's, that's in the middle of flu right. season. Well, that's the, that's the other thing. Moving the Oscars incentivizes people to go to see the, these movies in the theaters. They need the, the engine of the blockbusters to like get people back to the movies in the first, no one's, no one's going to risk their life to see West side story in theaters. Right. But people will risk their lives to see tenant. That's the difference. They will. I mean, I feel that tug. I'm already like, what bubble can I wear to the theater to see tenant? (laughs) Tomorrow and said, we're going to have press screenings to tenant. You're going to come in five people at a time. You'll sit in designated seats that are 10 feet away from each other. I wouldn't think twice. Same. Same. Well, I like, I feel like we've talked about this. I would go to a press screening of right, tenants a, when like we know who's there and they can contract trace the hell out of it. If you go to the first screening story, of a movie story, then going to a public screening. You're good. Yeah. If, if just go to the first showing of tenant, the minute your local multiplex opens, you'll be the first one to sit down and no one else will have touched it and you'll be good. What? That's the plan. No. What? That's, not yeah, that's how viruses work. It's not about no. people who are around you. It's not that's about like circulation in the, of the air in the room with all I, the people. And in then it. just bring a bunch of sweaters and put them in the seats. They're coming right back. We're recording. And then that comment. I am concerned that Patches has some fundamental. Uh, <laughs> He's watching Fox uh, News for his coronavirus knowledge. Virus works. Oh, I don't know. I'm, 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 trying to be optimistic and not think about this as a way of like preserving systems that I wasn't frustrated with in the first place. But on the positive side, it's very, it's proactive from uh, in a, in a way that seems to be trying to like help people and save movies. <clears throat> and I didn't really like the Oscars much anyway. So why should I care so much? <laughs> if it's good enough for Katie, it's good enough for me. I'll co-sign. No, I don't like it. I'm against it. Oh, it's it's bad. It's bad. Burn it all down. (laughs) Dave is wearing a shirt that says the periodic table of Spider-Man. But there are only like 16 Spider-Men on your shirt. Definitely not an accurate periodic table. I mean, I have the poster over here. It's it, uh, these are also different Spider Men instead of the same one in different costumes. It's a long story. Periodic table of Spider Men. There's at least a f- three or four symbiotes on that shirt. What? You know, I mean, there's original symbiote, and then there's Agent Venom, but that's like an entirely different person. Speaking of the 2021 Oscars patches, uh, Artemis Fowl now qualifies, right? Well, actually, oh man, I got the well, actually, a woman on our podcast. <laughs> Check that box. Um, about Artemis Fowl? What a dream come true. According to, to Kate Erbland of IndieWire um, and Zach Scharf, is that his right name, Dave? Uh, no, I say it. I don't really care. Okay, great. Um, oh. That Artemis Fowl is going to be eligible and submitted for the Emmys next year not the oscars so correction it is not going to be eligible for the for the oscars of 2021 unfortunately um and I it's not going i can't blame it's not going to win anything because holy shit this movie is terrible i can't <laughs> i can't believe it uh directed by kenneth Branagh. it sat on the shelf <laughs> kenneth definitely Branagh? Bran- definitely Branagh? Branagh? just Branagh? Branagh. 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 the Cannes film festival <laughs> 
Brannock, Kenneth Can't Brannock. Can't spell GOP without go patches. It's like the force <laughs> of, of wrong things. One, Let me just say this. The last of us is bad. Two, that viruses depend on being first in space somehow. <laughs> Kenneth Brannock. Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth B. Kenneth Brannock. Kenny B. Kenny, Kenny B. B. Kenny B was like 32 years old when he directed Hamlet. Yeah, Kenny B knows That's his crazy. Shakespeare. Yeah, Actually, one of the fun things, I know I was bragging in a chat about not talking about this, but Kenneth Branagh, like everybody who works on Thor talks about how like Kenneth Branagh is like adorable and great, where he's like, do we have to call the hammer Mjolnir? And everyone's like, yes, yes, Kevin. He's like, well, it's hard to pronounce Mjolnir. Just like his last name. Exactly. Um, is that why not the is, Kat Dennings Mew Mew joke? Uh, probably, maybe. Why is Kenneth Branagh uh, making this movie. It's well, baffling. Not to uh, draw attention back to IndieWire, an article that I actually have not read yet because my reading time is pretty limited these days, but Ann Thompson wrote an article after interviewing him about how he made, I mean, what she generously called the transition to an A-list actor, but I think the, the double reading there might be... You know, actor or director? Director, rather, about his transition to sort of being one of Disney's go-to studio hacks with diminishing returns. Um Although, you know, the, the Murder on the Orient Express, which is a Fox movie, I guess now... Now know, a Disney movie. Uh, ...was not particularly good, but it's a fun cast, and it did rather well, and... Uh, it's I think, getting a sequel, in theory, uh, this year. Which has come, you know, which was supposed to come out this year, anyway. Um, and it, uh, you know, even if a lot of these movies are not reaching the artistic heights that he may have been <laughs> achieving at some point in his life, like, we're were not the out-and-out train wrecks. Like, something went uniquely wrong with Artemis Fowl. Well, yeah, I mean, what I would say is that his Cinderella is very stylish, and what else? Didn't he? Oh, he made Thor, and yeah, I actually think Thor. the original Thor is better than people give it credit for. Canton yeah. Angles and uh, Donner Superman-isms. Um, I like original Thor. Artemis Fowl has some, like, visual panache, uh, but it is 90 minutes cut up. It's an abhorrent adaptation both from like a fan point of view i have not read these books i think they were a little after all of our times um the kind of post harry potter boom uh, of ya fantasy and uh talking to fans of the books like it's a complete they scrapped all the mythology and changed everything um but it's also just a horrible adaptation because it's full of poked like full of holes like there's a mysterious cloaked villain in the movie who is never revealed apparently played by hong chow but redubbed and not revealed like they don't tell you who it's like a mysterious villain you're supposed to pull back the cloak and like oh it's this person and you never get that moment there's not even like a post-credit scene teasing the the sequel it's a it's a strange movie it almost all takes place in artemis fowl's mansion um there are really no big set pieces and the most baffling you know, this movie was supposed to come out last summer. It's been in development for 20 years. It finally comes out. And lo and behold, it is about Judy Dench running a highly militarized ferry police and, <laughs> it, and overstepping its bounds with huge military. They're coming in with guns and warships to destroy Artemis Fowl. And holy shit, it's about the cops. Everything's about <laughs> the cops now. Um, so this movie was wait, cursed no matter what it did. It really, it really was. Where does Josh Gad fall on the cops versus Artemis Fowl? So Josh Gad plays a oversized dwarf. He's bigger than all the dwarves and wishes he was smaller. But uh, dwarves have the power to pull their mouth open really wide and 
eat dirt. And so he tunnels his way in and he's also a criminal thief type. So mm. um, he's caught at the beginning of the movie and the fairies enlist him to tunnel his way into Artemis's Fowl's mansion. Um, and it is disgusting. It is a horrible thing to witness. Um, again, lots of visual ideas. I guess that's why Kenny B makes these types of movies or he's just I think, I think the impression I get from Kenny B is that he loves making movies. He wants to be on a set. He wants to make choices. He likes talking to actors. And unfortunately, the only way you make movies in this day and age is to make these big, dumb blockbusters, right? No one's going to pay for Hamlet on 70 millimeter anymore if you want to make a movie that big. Hamlet 2. He could have done <laughs> Hamlet 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamlet 2 really needed him. I, uh, I have not regretfully seen Artemis Fowl. The, the reviews somehow did not compel me to spend 90 minutes watching this on Disney+. Plus. But uh, I was sort of taken aback by Patch's repeated descriptions about the Josh Gad character and Mike Ryan talking about them as well. Uh, and I, I tweeted the other day um, a bit flippantly that uh, I, I sort of couldn't get over the fact that Disney only donated $5 million to Black Lives Matter related causes, but spent $125 million on the budget of Artemis Fowl. And as some people pointed out, of course, uh, which I, again, I, I posted that in another tweet is a movie in which Josh Gad plays a kleptomaniac dwarf named Mulch Diggums who chews through the earth with his mouth and farts dirt out of his butt. Now, uh, people pointed out to me, of course, that a lot of that money went to paying professionals for their work, and it's fair. But uh, in, in, I wanted to give uh, a tip of the hat to Josh Gad, who reacted to that tweet by, and what I think, you know, you never know what these things could be a passive-aggressive move or just a nice way of sort of like leaning into it. Uh, followed me on Twitter for, for this. Has yet to reply in, in any capacity about that tweet, but I'm waiting. Uh, I'm waiting. He's waiting to see what your second Josh Gad-based opinion is, and but then he'll judge you. about that, and I was really <laughs> hoping he wouldn't come at me uh, upset. He doesn't seem like the type. Is that against my better judgment sometimes, I actually like Josh Gad. There's something I find very charming about his personality, not always about the choices he chooses to make in terms of projects. I think, uh, you know, certain types can only find certain kinds of roles in the Hollywood sphere he wants to work in. I'm thinking about Love and Other Drugs, uh, which is a strange part with like incestual overtones in regards to playing Jake Gyllenhaal's brother, (laughs) sex addict, uh, romantic comedy or dramedy or whatever you want to call it. Thank you for sharing. Um, You know, I saw him in Book of Mormon. I I think I, I... I like the energy that he brings to it. I wish him nothing but the best. He's caught in a very similar Disney zone with Kenneth Branagh. Um, being caught as in like making the most money, like more money than right. you can possibly imagine. Right. I don't. But it's buying him not just, I mean, it's buying him mansions, but it's also buying him creative control on things. Right? He's doing Disney Plus shows where he yeah. gets to, he wrote The Muppet Show or whatever. He's doing what he wants to do. Yeah. And I hope uh, one of those things he's doing, or at least some of the way that he's spending that money, is giving it, uh, at least in, in a better proportion, to Black Lives Matter-related causes than uh, his parent company or his current employer. Uh, I think his politics are generally pretty solid. His, politics so I think are, are, his heart is in the right place. Um, he's David just wanted to let us know that Josh Gad follows me. I know. What an uh, elaborate like a brag. Like a lot of celebrities. Josh Gad also follows me on Twitter. I don't know why, and I, I know never you provoked played The him, Last but... of Us, and I know you thought it was a fucking masterpiece. Please write in the email. <laughs> Does Josh Gad follow me on Twitter? Well, great <laughs> Maybe this is a great that. segment. Our <laughs> listeners love us. We're humble. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say <laughs> this. He does. Yeah. He does follow me on Twitter. Hey. Oh. <laughs> My point stands that 
Disney and, and now Netflix, I saw. And I know Netflix does their own outreach to marginalized communities, but uh, both gave incredibly paltry sums of money relative to what they have in their coffers. And especially Disney really irked me just because they, as a company, as a brand, so set the tone for so many families in America and throughout the world that I think it would be meaningful, especially for them. The money would go a lot further than, than other people's necessarily if they gave a more significant chunk Maybe of Maybe Artemis Fowl needs to steal to their money. Um, and mastermind. Mm. He also doesn't steal anything in the movie, I should note. He's supposedly a, a mastermind criminal and he does not steal a thing. It's very who bad. plays Artemis Fowl? Some kid who is completely like, you don't see him speak on screen. Almost all of his dialogue is <laughs> ADR or voiceover. While someone else, while the camera's on someone else, it must oh have been boy. a disaster. It's oh awesome. Boy. Anyway. Dave, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say something like, uh, I, I've, from all the descriptions of this film, I could only bring myself to watch the actual Josh Gad scene. And I don't hate the effect of him stretching his mouth out and then going like, okay. But I was not ready for his voice, and it didn't make me want to watch the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, Josh Gad and Judy Dench are both doing Christian Bale Batman voices in this movie for some reason, too. Become Everyone in the fairy world. Pro Josh Gad podcast, but uh, I, would, I would encourage him in the increasingly likely chance that he's listening. <laughs> no, it's now starting to feel like a pattern. To please pressure Disney into giving some more money to places and people who need it. Uh, last week turned out to actually be a pretty good and in, interesting week for movie releases, even if I will never see this King of Satin Island. It was a movie from a major director that came out. Uh, as Wait, did why Defy will you never months. see that movie? Why will you never I just see can't. I can't with Pete Davidson. I got oh. uh, nothing. Nothing Nothing is going to get me to see the King of Satin Island. Life's too short. Um, <laughs> but Defy Bloods is the new Spike Lee movie. It's on Netflix. It is even longer than the King of Satin Island, I think, um, even though I mean, they were both... It 154 is. minutes. I would hope long. that it's longer. I mean, an Apatow movie, you never know, man. Those things can... Staten Island is 140. What? Yeah. It's so long. Defy Blood spans like 40 years and like multiple... <laughs> Actually, no, I guess it all is in Vietnam. Um, but the King of Staten Island has two scenes in a Staten Island uh, underground fight club. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, Defy Bloods has a scene at an Apocalypse Now themed Vietnam dance club. Dance club, yeah. It does. It ever. That's one of the scenes I've seen. Is that a. Uh, actually, I don't know if it's Apocalypse Now theme. It just has like a big, big Apocalypse Now logo in the middle of it. Um, anyway, it's a really big, long Spike Lee movie with a ton going on. I would argue maybe a handful too many things going on. Um, kind of in the way of Black Klansman in a lot of his most recent movies. Um, but if you have been hearing about it at all on Twitter, you've probably heard it's got a great performance from Delroy Lindo. I argue that's not the only great performance going on in that movie. Um, and it's a new Spike Lee movie at a time when um, all of the chatter in the world is about paying attention to black art. Spike Lee is kind of where you begin with anything. Um, so attention must be paid. And honestly, like David, you said you've only watched half of it. I watched it in chunks too. I don't know that that's a terrible way to experience it. I mean, I was also pro like breaking the Irishman up into chunks, especially a movie this long. Um, mm. But it, God knows it's better than like 95% of whatever Netflix original stuff they're putting on the platform too. So it's like, it's kind of there for you as a gift to like come in and experience and come in and out of. And, you know, in the next scene, if you watch like 30 minutes of it and you're like, oh, okay, I think I know where this movie is going. You probably don't. And that's also part of the story. <laughs> I, I will say yeah. that 
I knew I knew where the next uh, few seconds were going for sure in a certain shot where someone begins walking backwards in a clearing uh, halfway through the yeah. movie. I was like, this this uh, shot composition only ever means one thing. Yeah, if you watch until that part, I know where you are. Yes. <laughs> That's actually the part where I also paused it to take a break between watching the two parts because... Um, uh, I only took like a three or four minute break. It's not like I stopped and kept watching it the rest of the day, but it is a lot of movie. And because uh, I think it benefits from having that much time specifically just to deal with the character of Paul, uh, their uh, Vietnam veteran friend who has suffered great trauma. And they're all Vietnam veterans. <laughs> they're all <laughs> Vietnam veterans. Thank you for and, saying that. Uh, well, they're not all Vietnam veterans. One of them is the son, son of a Vietnam yes. veteran. Sure. And then there's also a French group of mine people, uh, mine removal people. <laughs> not not mine. Not, not French mine mimes. People. Not French mine people, people like dwarves, like in the <laughs> Artemis Fowl. <laughs> yeah. And then there's <laughs> then they pull up on their mouths and they start <laughs> eating for the mines. But also um, one of them is played by Paul Walter Hauser, uh, aka Richard Jewell. So. Anyway, not French. And I kind of feel like the the space that it takes to work on the character, I really like, but it does make the middle part kind of soft plot-wise. Uh, because it's a well-constructed you know, movie, on like, and it feels uh, like a Spike Lee movie, those two things sort of combine. So in the middle, I know sort of what I'm going to get. Uh, and some of the scenes start to like drag on. So they're, uh, it's, essentially, it's four friends who are going back to Vietnam to retrieve the body of their fifth friend who died there, but also secretly the gold that they buried there, uh, some lost U.S. gold that now they're going to reclaim uh, for their people. And what the definition of uh, their people means to these five bloods is sort of explored uh, throughout the movie. But uh, along the way, you know, um, there are a lot of interesting scenes about how it would be returning to Vietnam as a GI and uh, the different uh, opinions of both like the locals and uh, the black soldiers. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good history that's very starkly presented by Spike Lee because he will cut away to a real picture of the person after describing what they did for the black cause or for the Vietnam war, um, both positively and negatively. The problem is when it gets down to having to actually deal with the plot, I've kind of already dealt with like a bunch of the character stuff. So the middle of the movie, which is like literally a long ass scene of digging up gold on the side of the mountain. That scene lasts forever. And it's a, it's deliberate. Spike Lee knows he's doing enough that he wants it to last forever, but it, it, it drags. Yeah. I think it's deliberate because there's also the threat that there could be a mine out there because they have already set that up. But sure. then that happens. Then they all start kind of feuding about like what they're going to do with the money, which somebody says early on is going to happen. So I'm like, cool, you're paying off on that story point. But then the guy backs up into the mine and I had to kind of pause it where it's like, okay, this is where it, the movie's now done everything I know that it has to do. And I think after that, it kind of pivots into what you were talking about, Katie, where it's like the back half of the movie takes some unexpected twists and turns uh, as to uh, how they... Ex- they get out of the jungle once they get into it, and I, I was I did not stop watching it for any any sort of uh, qualitative comment on on the quality of the movie. I uh, was not watching it for work, and I had a baby who was spitting up all over me, and uh, it seemed like he had reached his breaking point. Uh, <laughs> Much like some of the characters in the movie, I was glad. What did you think? I was I was glad the extent to which it is very obviously a Spike Lee movie. Um, that's the only kind of movie I want to see from him, um, and. Uh, 
because uh, no one else is no one else is making them. And uh, you know, Delroy Lindo's performance, which I gather I've only really seen the tip of the iceberg of so far. Yeah, the- no, he really emerges in the second half. One of the, I mean, it's strange because I think of him as one of my favorite actors from my childhood, and yet I can't tell you what he was in that I was watching in like 1994 that left such an impression. But uh, I'm going to look this up because I would. Congo? Look. No, I mean, Ooh, yeah. I hate Congo. At least I mean, me too. I love to hate Congo. The he monkey like laser movie. Are you, you watching Get Shorty when you were ten? I saw Get Shorty in theaters whenever that came out. When, no, like, you were too young. Yeah, but uh, I've, I have such a, a soft spot in my heart for Delroy Lindo, and it's so great to see him uh, being featured in a role like this. It's you like, gotta be watching Good Fight, man. I don't think yes, you'd be your I true fan. Um, I'm gonna be really curious when I finish the movie to dive into some of the dialogue around the representation of the Vietnamese characters in the movie. Um, and just because it, it seems like, and I haven't really gotten a, a great reading on what the reaction has been overall, but, uh, you know, I, there's been some conversation around it. And I've always just sort of been enamored by how Spike Lee has treated other, I don't know if marginalized is the right way of putting it, but like other groups who have been oppressed in any capacity in his movies. Uh, and, I, you know, Spike Lee is obviously a black filmmaker who's done, uh, most of his work focused in the black community, but it was hard for me not to be struck by black Klansmen, the extent to which that it was the most nuanced and empathetic portrait of being a Jewish American person I'd seen in a major Hollywood movie in a very, very long time. Um, and I found similar undercurrents to uh, obviously a less powerful film in a lot of capacities than Do the Right Thing, but uh, just the, the myriad of characters that he gives attention to in Summer of Sam um, under similar, you know, boiling circumstances in one long New York summer. Uh, there's a reservoir of empathy of anyone who's suffering in these movies that um, is registers with me, you know, as a Jew, as a white person, I don't know, um, which is not to take away, obviously, from the thrust of what Spike Lee does, but uh, is something that I was sensitive to about the depictions of Vietnamese people in this movie and already stuck out to me in the first half, given that there are some uh, characters who... Uh, have unexpected connections with people that they remember from the time of Vietnam. Yeah, there's, uh, I'm going to bring up two things that are sort of nitpicky. One is a nitpick and the other one is, uh, I'm not sure if it's stylistic. It's definitely a choice. I'm trying to figure out if you guys can help me with it. First thing is this movie has shot on at least three formats. Um, and uh, one of them is 16 millimeter, which they shoot the past in. Uh, which is really cool. Uh, film stock 16 millimeter looks really good. It looks like Vietnam news footage. But then they also have a character who's with them in the present day on the boat going upriver who's shooting 16 millimeter and we have audio with it. Wouldn't that just be an iPhone? Yeah, no, you see someone with an old camera in yeah. like yeah, a couple yeah. shots. I can't, is it the... Um, Clark oh. Peter's character brings um, the camera, right? Yeah, it's like one of, it's one yeah. of the actual, it's one of, the bloods. one of the bloods. It just yeah. seems like anachronistic compared to the rest of the the way the film uses aspect ratios and whatnot to very be like the past is 16 millimeter. If they're in Vietnam, but they're not in the jungle, we're in, uh, what is it? Two, eight, five. And then the, uh, the, the, the feet, the flashbacks are one, three, three. There was a good article on slate about this because there's actually four different aspect ratios in the movie. So the scenes, the Vietnam flashbacks are 16 millimeter reversal stock and they look like super kind of blown out saturated they're one three three and then the scenes there's two different digital frames like when they're just in 
the present day in cities, they're in like ultra wide two, three, nine. And then when they go to the jungle that opens up into 169 and then, yeah, there's a, there's super eight footage. It's not 16. The present day camera is super eight. in two, three, nine. find that like the, like, obviously you can appreciate the differences in the film stocks that are used in, in the various time periods, but there is, and I don't think it's just in my television, a sort of uh, glossy Netflix digital veneer that makes everything look a little bit more like everything else. Yes. And it's, I agree I, with you. You know, and this is a movie that was going to premiere in Cannes and uh, have some sort of life on big screens otherwise, um, if not for the pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's watching any new Spike Lee movie on my couch with my baby sitting on my lap is not ideal, but uh yeah, it, it really felt like it lost something. And I think that like the... But it's only... I, I only felt that way in the beginning. Like the beginning when it's in that wide... When they're in the cities and it's the super crisp digital cinematography, it looks like wild hogs or something. Uh, I, <laughs> it looks I, like a comedy. Like, or like the um, like grown-ups. Like you can... Yeah, yeah. Guys are in like their casual clothes or drinking cocktails in a hotel lobby. It's like, like four oh, old guys. Like, it's Las Vegas, but in Yeah, um, and Vietnam. it kind of tricks you into thinking it's going to be a more relaxed movie than it I is. Like that. And I Yeah, and I like the way that the movie gets more and more intense as it goes. I mean, you think about Apocalypse Now as like they get further up into the jungle, like the, the mood shifts entirely. The Ride of the Valkyries sequence in this is <laughs> very amusing. There's uh, so many. I mean, I like, and I think some people have done like lists of all the references in here too, but yeah, very later on you get a very explicit treasure to see Madre line too, so uh, he's yeah. a baby's kids. I mean, the super super eight must be some sort must be some sort of reference because I can't think of a reason why in story because they have the thing like the still photographer who's you know taking I mean, the pictures. reason might be that they're old. Is the is there super eight in Apocalypse now? Well, I mean, that's the other reason if that's actual Super 8 footage that they didn't shoot for the production, if it is. Because like, I think that's what some of the stills are, is they're meant to recreate actual Vietnam photography. But it's just like we see a character take it and then we see the still really quick. So, again, I'm not exactly sure why that just that Super 8 footage is in there. The rest I completely understand. The second thing that I'm going to throw out to our audience, because I doubt anybody has an answer that makes any sense, because I've been thinking about it for like 24 hours. Um, they're two times in the back half of the movie where Clark Peters Otis character hugs someone. He hugs them and he taps them on the back. And then we cut to another angle of the same. And it does it. It shows it again. Yeah. Yes. And I it's only that, happens, that character. Is it really? I, as far I, as I can it tell. happens a couple times. I thought it was more than twice. Um, I don't know. I thought it like a, like a different way of doing a zoom. Like uh, here's a significant moment. Let me show it to you twice. Kind yeah. Of, I mean, uh, maybe like, it that felt was, kind of like experimental. It definitely fits for the latter hugs, but if it happens before, yeah, I just didn't notice it before. Another reference that that did crop up in the first half that I saw uh, was to the iconic photograph of Huey Newton uh, holding a gun in one hand and a spear in the other. And we know, I don't know, a lot of us were talking about beforehand, we just watched Agnes Varda's Black Panther short, which is on the Criterion channel. uh, And free, which is why I was able to watch it. Right. Uh, they, They looked at the paywall on a number of films either by black filmmakers or about black history. Um, and uh, there's a reference, there's a very strong visual reference to that photograph in the first half with Chadwick Boseman 
Um, and yeah, we didn't mention that Chadwick Boseman plays the. Uh, we didn't really mention the plot or any of the characters. I, I really mentioned the plot. We did the plot. The crazy thing to me, and like it doesn't really matter, but so in the <laughs> Vietnam flashbacks, they have all of the older actors playing themselves, basically just. I thought that was cool. Themselves, I, it, it's cool to me. And then though there is this, like at the very I mean, end, you see a shot of them de-aged as like a group photo. And yeah, it's, that was weird. That was so the weird. Joke to Dave on Twitter about how the de-aging effects in this Netflix movie were terrible, and well, he. Did not respond to it at all. Other than to think no, was, wait till you get to the. You're talking image. about the one, the one photograph. I hadn't realized you hadn't <laughs> yeah. watched the whole movie. Yeah, no, the no. one photograph at the end is is alarming. But the <laughs> the thing, like Chadwick Boseman, you kind of believe is a GI, but he is also forty oh, years oh, old. Wait, let's, let's talk about the the. Yeah, that is Chadwick Boseman's age is a whole he thing is, that we don't. Really he talk is about like that. way. Older um, than let's talk about the flashbacks a little bit. He was twenty five, and I would believe it. Yeah, I, I mean, that it looks that way. He's sold that way. Um, he is. He is forty two years old. I mean, he's God. he's running with like the the young Marvel crowd. I feel but like I marketing tells us he's a young. Man. Yeah, he stands next to Brie Larson. You're like, yeah, they're the same age. I did uh, find the entire premise, which obviously I think needs the the tonal massaging that Spike Lee gives his movies to work. It, it wouldn't work in a more straight based piece like The Irishman, but it did feel particularly refreshing after the two hundred million dollars worth of de aging effects in The Irishman to see that really, <laughs> he's like, fuck it, is uh, in Vietnam now. <laughs> it feels like a bigger choice, right? Like, oh, what, let's talk about the flashbacks a little bit because when they first happen, and Katie, I feel like when we talked about when I got your initial reaction after you saw the movie, you were like the music because I was talking about the music, the Terrence Blanchard score that I was getting excited to hear because I love his music, and you were like the music kind of sucks. Um, I believe it was a direct paraphrased yeah, quote. Um, but here's the thing: here's the mu- music, especially the flashbacks, is really bombastic. Yeah, and the whole all of the flashbacks feel like a Vietnam movie more than they feel like a Vietnam, like a verite flashback to something that's really happening. Right? What do you what do you make? I mean, the reason I think the actors can play themselves in these flashbacks is because they're they're not they don't feel like real memories or something. They're not ordinary flashbacks. They feel like flashbacks interpreted by film culture or something. They're like super no, I think that's sa- maybe, saturated, and the music is bombastic, and maybe the not violence fi- is. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily film culture, but I do, I do think it's leading into the fact that like nobody really knows what happened out there is the thing. We mm. we entered into a war. They didn't want to be in it. Uh, the white soldiers get killed off in the first flashback that has like military things. So we spend most of the movie in flashback and in current day with these non-white people that are continuing to be traumatized by this thing they had no control over and don't even really know what happened. Like, there's a lot of discussion early on in the movie between, like, their tour guide and each other about, like, you know, my dad fought for this and we were at this battle and, like, this sort of uh, history of engagements in the war. But none of them are based around, like, victories or what we would consider from, like, our American schooling, like, the history of the Vietnam War. They're all side things, especially the massacre that comes up uh, later in the movie. Um, which you don't see, but is a historical, uh, is a ac- actually a massacre that happened. So you do see some uh, photos. Real, of it. pretty disturbing photos. Very disturbing photos. Question but, about the, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Dave. No, 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 go ahead. Um, the way that like, I get the, the way that the flashbacks are filmed were bombastic and kind of distressing you, like taking away from reality. But I wonder if that takes away from the whole notion of the movie that like these soldiers are there for a war they don't want to fight and like, they're in this very distinct kind of hell. You don't really get that like war is hell vibe from the flashbacks. And I, I don't know there's that, that one, those go hand in hand. There's that one where they're crouching down to ambush a Viet Cong party mm. and they make the choice to actually translate 
the Vietnamese. So yeah. you hear them having like a perfectly normal conversation. Yeah. But then Chadwick Boseman's just like now and they just slaughter yeah. all of them. I mean, like, and they're depicting Chadwick Boseman as this kind of action hero icon who like gives them speeches about how this isn't their war to fight. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a lot of style. It's a lot of like cinematic references to it, but I don't know that it like added to the depth of the characters, the way that you get into but it. They talk about well. early on, like hating Rambo and wanting their stories told on some level is this movie kind of a have your cake and eat it. Uh, it's like it, a, ch- it, a chance to get a black Vietnam movie. If like Rambo got a bunch of Vietnam movies, why not let black soldiers? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if this sounds reductive, but uh, for I, I know that Spike Lee has criticized Tarantino in the past for like telling black stories and and using black dialogue in his in his movies mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but think of Tarantino like Spike Lee kind of in that mode like taking history and working it toward in the way that he wants to and, and pulling off action scenes. I was trying to think of like outside of inside man, what, what movies have set pieces? What of his, uh, I guess black Klansman has a few kind of actiony set pieces in it, but this has like shoot 'em up style Rambo esque set pieces that are pretty fun. Um, even though they are kind of disgusting anti-war <laughs> messages at the same time. Uh, I feel like he is really doing it all in this movie, which adds to the kind of shagginess and the hazy memories and the, and the trauma of the second half. I mean, where people are experiencing PTSD and this is all catching up with them. The valorization of war seems to really just smack them across the face. And it, it leads to so much downfall. Uh, the first half of the movie is fun. And the second half is harrowing on so many levels. Um, and I think it only, the second half only works because of that first half it's uh, it reminds me of tarantino stuff it, it i think it bites off it, it deals with a lot of stuff i think um that watchmen tried to deal with but instead of watchmen talking about sort of how we generationally keep hurting ourselves uh through like bad race relations and the vietnam war this one by the nature of it being like this flashback like hunt for gold story doesn't have to take that divide like all the people that we meet are at most one generation away from the war and those one generation people uh like their parents were direct like warriors so in that way i think it it gave me a better sense than watchman's fantasy alternate history about how the black uh black american experience in the vietnam war and how the vietnamese experience of the american war as they call it sort of overlaps more uh, than maybe Watchmen's idea that we won it and then became the oppressors in Vietnam did. So I, I, I agree with patches in that it's like shaggy, but I almost kind of like that because it, Me too. it's, it, it allows Spike Lee to be blunt in the ways that he's always blunt. So you're not going to miss the points that he doesn't want you to miss, but that doesn't make him like an unnuanced filmmaker at all. So all these other yeah. corners open up as the movie continues. No, I think of him as like a modern artist painter. He's very like the collaging that he's developed in his films over the last, Oh man, it must be almost 20 years now. It's interesting how his filmmaking. Well, it's interesting how his films change after connecting with Kevin Wilmont and, and making this, um, did you guys ever see Confederate States of America, this film that 
that Ken Wilmot made and so Spike Lee. Confederacy? No, I, I think. <laughs> no, not that. It, okay. like, Confederate States of America was like a, almost like a mockumentary that yes, Kevin I, Wilmot directed. And the, uh, if the Confederacy had won, right? A lot of it, I feel like it impacted the way Spike Lee is making movies and how he's taking the clips and how he's injecting pictures. And I, I just love that kind of collage aspect. And it feels like in this movie, especially compared to something like Black Klansman most recently, just like let's make that the script now too like let's let's bring that collage or that that drip painting aspect to the, to yeah, the storytelling been really conversant with pre-existing culture and pop culture i mean and he uh, is leaning into that more and more as patches was saying as he gets older i mean i think you know this is a movie that broadly borrows from the structure of the tre- treasure of the Sierra Madre and in true spikely fashion uh, also directly quotes the treasure of the Sierra Madre where they're talking about, you know, they don't need no stinking badges. Um, and uh, I thought that was a true Beverly Hills. Uh, oh yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I get those two films confused all the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that is, that has become part of his power as he renegotiates a lot of these sort of understood bits of cultural vernacular in new ways or through different lenses. Man, I feel like if you got, we don't need those stinking badges that you actually yeah, you want, are like, yeah, that's most of the movie. The movie. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Wake Ace up and we'll finish it together. Yeah. yeah. You got the, the big climax coming up, but that's pretty good. I would say I miss a little bit of the directness of black Klansmen, just plot wise. Like the way, I mean, I guess like the five bloods as like a, they go into the jungle, they come out of the jungle, spoiler alert. Um, but you know, it detours a lot in the meantime, like it did wear me out a little bit more than black Klansmen did, I think, but also I watched black Klansmen in the theater and had time to focus on it. So that might be the difference. Um, but also it's, uh, you know, comparing one Spike Lee movie against another isn't really a winning game. Like, I think we can all agree. I, I know we're going long here, but what did you think of the Clark Peters, the Otis? He, he reconnects with this prostitute that he kind of fell in love with during the Vietnam war. And he, and he turned out to have a, a kid and that whole thing did that uh, resonate with you or is that a spoiler oh, i don't know. i don't know i mean it felt That's i mean it, it felt less powerful than the kind of father some subplot you get between um delroy lindo and um jonathan what's his last name um majors. majors majors um who i thought was great and they have a lot of really great uh direct scenes together i mean kind of the minute that Clara Peters walks into the apartment of this woman. You're like, oh boy, I bet I know what this is coming. And that happens a lot. Like there's a lot of like melodrama twists to happen throughout the whole thing and with various other characters and their backstories um, that I found some more powerful than the others. Like, I, and I think like sometimes with the Clark Peters stuff, like separate from the group, like you wanted more time with the group themselves and exploring those dynamics, except other than kind of the outside forces acting upon them. Um, so maybe that's kind of what I mean about the shagginess of the script, that it's kind of bouncing off in a lot of different directions when I felt like the stuff that was good deserved more time. Yeah, if there was a way to, mas- to massage that relationship more into the movie without like making them go along on the fucking trip, which is the only way I can think about doing it, which would be dumb. I would. Yeah. Love to I mean, you need her, but like, you know, they have, you have the whole long scene where like Jean Renault is like the French figure. Like you don't need like that right. stuff. What? Like, the process that start happening. Here yeah, you do. Do you? Yeah, you need a French person to put on a Make America Great hat again and then shoot him up. <laughs> There's a, a, a lot of talking about what the French did and didn't do in multiple wars in this movie, which yeah. is an interesting little side. I am interested in also, like Spike Lee made the definitive 9-11 film, which was again, 25th hour. I mean, it is a movie that he seized on the moment as soon as it was available to him. Wasn't afraid of being overly precious about it. 
just warped it into the story that he was already in the process of telling. And he has been obviously not the only filmmaker who's uh, confronted the Trump era, but he has uh, done so with his usual bravado and, and confrontational quality in Black Klansman and this and other work. Uh, and I wonder if in 10 or 20 years from now, it will feel like he had his finger on the pulse of, of this moment and really crystallized it for us as well as he did uh, nine, the days after 9-11. I mean, certainly no one's doing the same thing. Well, actually, the only other people I would say are doing it are the Delroy Lindo connection would be the Good Fight crew and telling really blunt stories about the, the Trump era. Um, but this movie is blunt about the Trump era. Delroy Lindo's character is a Trump voter. Yeah. And they, they wrestle with that a they whole bunch. They get a bunch. lot of mileage out of that hat. They, do they really do. Oh man, there's so much going on in this movie. I loved it. I thought I had a great time. I think it's wildly entertaining and really thought provoking. Um, and there's so many good actors in it. I didn't I expect, uh, I didn't expect what's his name from Broadway to show up. You know, who I'm um, talking about. Norm Lewis. Yeah. I didn't realize no, he was in great. the movie. That, he's great in the movie. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is actually very good in the, and, and funny in the movie. And then he does his shit line. And then I'm like, come on. And he's done that in another Spike Lee movie. What he's, is, been he's in 25th Hour. He's I said. know. That's not what I'm... He, no, he, but he does the like... He's been in at least something else where he's done the like shit. I mean, um, he does it in 25th Hour. <laughs> does he really do it in 25th Hour? But that was before the wire. interrogating Edward Norton. He's like... Oh, no. I guess that was... Oh, he's a Black Klansman and does it. Of course. I mean, he is in Black Lensman. Anyway, I guess that's what he does. Where Spike Lee, you know, is, is not at all hesitant to, I mean, he's giddy about. Yes. This is uh, his like Apple oh, cigarettes yeah. or whatever that Tarantino brand is. Oh yeah. No. Oh, he's in, I, maybe, I think Red Hook Summer is what I'm thinking of. Anyway. Um, I thought Paul Walter Hauser was also great and like a really tiny part, but I'm just like enjoying seeing this guy. Like, I thought he was great in Richard Jewell movie. I didn't like at all. And I thought he was great in black. It is interesting that Spike Lee brought back his two like neo-Nazis and recast them in different parts. I know this movie Yeah, with a like pretty French girl who gets to be a love interest. Um, because why not? You need a, need a white love interest in there. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, she shows up looking like Julie Delpy in the mid nineties. You're like, okay, go for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Defy Bloods, Netflix right now. Check it out. Mm-hmm. Far away from everyone. Let them blow away in the dust. And trust that everything is somehow going to be all right. Well, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. David is going to talk about the video game I hear next week. Please. I'll be I'll be somewhere else when that's. Oh no, no, you're you will be right <laughs> here and you will be engaged and you'll be prepared. Uh, I'm ready. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. My name is Sir Kenneth Branagh, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, findinginthewarm.com, where you can listen to the episodes. If you're sitting at your computer and you don't have your phone. You want to covertly listen to our our show? Go to fightinginthewarm.com where you can listen to it. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, I'm a senior film critic for IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. I'm writing on IndieWire. Uh, please, I, I implore you, uh, if if you are uh, at, at all passionate about the video game The Last of Us or just want to do me a solid, please go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room, and just mercilessly tear patches. A new one. Uh, while also popping up the show. That would be a really great way of 
Killer Cooper and Zip One Stone, uh, Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Thanks. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going to challenge David Ehrlich to tweet about the podcast he's on this week in response to that <laughs> challenge that he's uh, sending out to everybody else. You can listen to another podcast I'm on called the Story of a Lost Rewatch podcast. We're watching the show Lost. You can find it wherever great podcasts are found. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm doing a lot more retweeting these days, but you can find me at da 7 E. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on the Little Gold Men podcast for this week. We're talking about Gone with the Wind, the movie everyone wants to talk about. And actually, I, we haven't had the conversation yet, but I think it's going to be a good one. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about whatever you like or answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of continued bad news, what's something good that has happened in your neck of the woods? Honestly, I would love for you guys to tweet us specifically about your personal good news, so bring it on. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Get it from the fire, just get-